Gator basketball is peaking at the right time under Todd Golden. The Gator baseball team bounces back from a rough season opener and now has collected a midweek sweep over North Florida and a weekend sweep and over Columbia. And the Gator softball team is also looking good as the SEC slate approaches. This is the In All Kinds of Weather forecast. of the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast. I am your host, Neil Shulman. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, our co-host Chris Yanes has some some real-life stuff that he's got to attend to. He's good. He's fine. Um, in fact, he will be with us again very shortly, also anticipating getting a couple of big-time guests for us. Last one we had, uh, we, we teased as one of the greatest athletes to ever come through the University of Florida. I think we delivered on that as Jack Caglione, off to a great start this season for the Gators as well. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. We have Gator basketball with a pretty nice surge recently, beating Auburn, LSU, Georgia. Uh, tough loss to Alabama, but then a bounce back win over Vanderbilt. Also got Gator baseball talking about them. Um, five and one now on the year after a rather perplexing season opening loss to St. John's and Gator softball also uh, kicking things into high gear as they approach the SEC schedule. So uh, we have a lot to talk about the football as well. We're going to save that for a different show because we got enough to talk about right now with the other sports football. We have just to give a taste since our last show, uh, Darnell Stapleton leaving for the NFL, our strength coach, Craig Fitzgerald leaving now being replaced by Tyler miles. Florida bringing in Jesse Ackerman to help Miles, actually bringing him back to help Miles. He used to be on the Florida staff under Will Muschamp and Joe McElwain. Got a commit in four-star offensive lineman Peyton Joseph. A really nice thing we saw happen with NIL uh, with DeAndre Robinson, Florida signee buying his mom a house with NIL money. That's what NIL is for. And Florida has a new offensive coordinator in Russ Calloway, or not really – new but he you know because he was on staff but he is new in the fact that he holds the title of co-offensive coordinator or at least he does according to multiple reports including the pretty reliable jacob rudner so that's a different show right now basketball baseball and softball let's get into it uh basketball is the one that is going to be playing in the ncaa tournament in the most near future obviously because the season starts a lot earlier they're a winter sport baseball and softball are spring sports and we've got a lot of games to talk about since the last time we did a show auburn was the one that came first after our last show and i think that was the game that cemented florida's ncaa tournament spot it's 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 a quad one win but it's also more than that it's in a way, it's like Animal Farm, the, the the classic George Orwell book, Animal Farm. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Well, not all quad wins are not all quad one wins are created equal. It's not even like a quad one A, quad one B type of situation. This is a supersized quad one win uh, because Florida just completely dominated Auburn in every possible fashion. They were up thirty at one point, or maybe it was 29. I think it, it, they were either up 30 or very close to 30 points. Either way, just completely fathering Auburn from start to finish. Uh, no complaints, no nitpicking. Florida did everything right there. They even out-rebounded Auburn, despite Auburn having what I thought was a size advantage. Um, 
in their front courts, but Florida actually collected more rebounds than them. Micah Hanlogton had a nice performance there, and Florida got 43 boards to Auburn's 41. And anytime you you out rebound a team that is supposed to having or is supposed to have a rebounding advantage over you, that's a big win. So, and and also that win might just cost Auburn an SEC championship because they were looking to win the SEC under Bruce Pearl again, and now they're um, on the outside looking in of that race right now. LSU was the next game. Then that one got a little frightening. That's the one where you go, okay, you know, you got a lead. You're the better team. Now finish it. Now close it out. Florida didn't do that. Shot selection kind of deteriorated down the stretch. The second that LSU changed from uh, from a man defense to a zone defense, it completely flummoxed the Florida offense. Our movements just didn't seem as crisp. We looked confused like we'd never even seen it before. We just couldn't find any holes in that zone. And LSU came all the way back. And really, they should have sent that to OT. Florida was very lucky to survive that in regulation. LSU had the right play drawn up. The ball just comes right to Jordan Wright, who was wide open for maybe a four-foot shot, at most a five-foot shot, but probably three or four feet away from the hoop. And he just missed the easiest shot of his life. But I mean, on, on that play, Florida was, was for all intents purposes, beaten. The ball had found its way to Jordan, Wright. LSU had the shot they could have only dreamed of, and it just didn't go in. So uh, because he left it short, Florida managed to survive that one as well in the Odo. Georgia. Well, it, it's, it's mid-major Mike <laughs> watching him in Florida for seven years the pattern of, of Mike White basketball team is pretty clear. They're going to shoot the ball well at times. They're not going to shoot the ball well at other times. And when they don't, it is really, really ugly. So they did shoot well for a half, but they still don't have size that Florida has. And their offense as a whole is just, relatively speaking, pretty vanilla. And I don't I don't want to say unimaginative, but it's, it's fairly simple to stop if you have the right defensive intensity. And Florida did. So when their threes don't fall, they don't really have a backup plan for putting the ball in the basket. Um, the first shot, first half, they hit their shots. It was a track meet. It was 46-40 Georgia at the break. Second half, the threes just stopped falling. Florida's offense, which definitely does feature more ball movement and just more creativity in general, was able to keep scoring. Georgia cooled off. They only scored 36 in the second half, in part because Florida owned the boards. Also because Georgia hit four threes in the first half three of them from um, from Noah Thomason, and only got two to go down in the second half. And here's the thing that I'm still not quite understanding. Mike White, ha- I mean, he has to be watching film of, of Florida's previous game. I mean, no no Division One basketball coach doesn't watch film. So, I mean, of course he did. He had to have noticed how Florida struggled against the zone that LSU rolled out late in the game he didn't try it. He just didn't try going to zone defense, despite the obvious problems that Florida had with that one, three, one that LSU rolled out. It's a completely different Florida team when they have to face that zone. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that, that Mike white was aware of it. I'm, I'm sure that he noticed it. It's, it's impossible. Like I said, it's impossible to be a division one basketball coach and not notice something like that. When you watch the film, 
So maybe he did notice it. Maybe he, he did try it out and practice with his, I mean, with, with his scout team offense and the team just couldn't execute it right. Maybe there were just too many holes in it when they practiced it. Um, but you know what? It I, It's one of the more perplexing things to me as a, as a Gator basketball fan, why he didn't try that. But it's also not the first time Mike White has, has, uh, has let his team down with X's and O's. So good for Florida in this case. It's about time his in-game, the Nepotute stopped costing Florida and started helping Florida. He used his own for exactly one Florida possession, and it wasn't a very good one because they left the corner three wide open, and then it was right back to man defense. So I don't understand that, but in any case, thank you, Mike White. Thank you, Georgia, for, for paying Florida $1.25 million to take Mike White away from us. And Todd Golden providing us with yet another piece of vindication for stating all along that Mike White didn't belong at Florida as Golden is now 4-0 head-to-head against mid-major Mike. And just one more quick note, just, just to clarify, um, because everyone always says this. It, it's all it's all I hear on, on social media. Why do you hate Mike White? I, I don't. Well, I didn't hate him. Um, I never hated him when he was at Florida. I didn't see any evidence to justify his continued employment at Florida, but I didn't hate him at Florida. But I do now. Um, Now I do because he's at Georgia and that's the treatment that the University of Georgia gets from the University of Florida. That's what a rivalry is. That's how a rivalry works. If you are employed by or you play for the University of Georgia, you are going to be hated by true Florida Gator fans. So there's nothing personal against him, but he is now the rival. Georgia and Florida are arch enemies. That's just how it works. So if Florida were to ever get their football program to a place where they were beating up on Kirby Smart and Georgia year in and year out, I mean, we can all dream, but let's just say hypothetically that Florida were to get their football program to that point. Yeah, we'd be treating Kirby Smart exactly the same way. So it's not that the hatred for him doesn't come from the fact that he used to coach Florida or that he wasn't good at Florida or anything like that. The hatred for him is that he's a Georgia Bulldog. And that's how you treat coaches at the University of Georgia. You you hate them. You you just do. That's just how it works. And if you need clarification for that, then I mean, I mean, it, it's you, you kind of need to get your uh, your you kind of need to get retrained on how to be a Gator fan. But anyway, that was Georgia. Next up was Alabama. The Crimson Tide didn't actually shoot that great relative to how they can shoot the ball, but nonetheless, that was a really fun game between two NCAA tournament teams. That was just an absolute track meet between two tournament teams, maybe between two Sweet 16 teams. And that's what we should be talking about. That's what we should have be the story because that was a really fun game to watch with a lot of action back and forth and just, you know, no chance to catch your breath. It's just more line up and down the court and just more things happening, more developments, more plot twists rolling themselves out to us. But instead, we have to talk about the fact that Alabama's Mohamed Wagi brought his fist back and punched Florida's Alex Condon in the back of the head for a couple of reasons. First, put very simply, that's an action that you do that on the street. You do that in a bar. You do that to your to your wife, your husband, your boyfriend, girlfriend. You're going to jail. That's a crime. That's the textbook definition of the legal phrase aggravated battery. 
Like if you were to ask a law firm to construct an educational video demonstrating the legal definition of aggravated battery, not simple battery, by the way, aggravated battery. You ask a law firm to construct an educational video demonstrating what the legal definition of aggravated battery is, and they will show you that clip of what he did. It's not only intent to make physical contact, but it, with intent to do bodily harm. It, is that not the perfect description for what he did? Bringing the fist back, bringing it back, not just going for the ball, not like, like a jab would have been, bringing the fist back and then slamming it into the back of his head. Of course, being the SEC referees, not only do they not call a flagrant two on Muhammad Wagi, not only do they not call a foul at all on Muhammad Wagi, they call a foul on Alex Condit. <laughs> they call a foul on Florida. They call a foul on the guy who is the victim of aggravated battery. So that's appalling, first of all. Um, within the context of the game itself, like take the, it's hard to take the moral aspect of that out because I mean, we, we do, we do, we do talk about how the moral issues that we learn within college sports are more important than Florida wins or loses, but take that aside. Florida had up to five points taken off the board with that, with that missed call. Because if you think about it, flagrant two, two shots and the ball, so you figure Florida's going to have one of their better free throw shooters at the line. That should be two points for you and a possession, which could be two or maybe even three points if you hit a three. So minus five potentially on the scoreboard for Florida at the very least, at the very least, that's minus two for Florida. And that was a big deal because that game went to overtime where Florida lost. So Think about that, as many as five points being taken away from Florida's side of the scoreboard with the two free throws and the possession, that's the game. So it sucks that that's what we have to talk about. I'd prefer to be talking about the sport itself, that a group of really talented 18 to 22-year-olds are playing at a very high level right now for the University of Florida than the incompetence of professional referees who get paid to well, I mean, the athletes get paid now too in the SEC and in college sports, but then professionals, then, then professional referees. I'd rather be talking about the, the game itself, but that's where we're at. And losing that game might have cost Florida an SEC title. They're now two games out of first place with four teams ahead of them and four games to go. They did bounce back against Vandy to their credit. That was a very nice showing. Wasn't, wasn't perfect. Maybe, um, a little bit of a hangover for a couple guys. Didn't really see anything from Riley Kugel. Micah Hanlogs had only had three boards, didn't score a single point. Zion Pullen only had two points on the day. First time as a Gator, he did not have 10 or more. But Richard had a big day, 21 for him. Clayton had a big day, 19 for him. Tyree Samuel continues to develop, and Vanny just had no answer for him down low. This game was never really in question. Kind of got sloppy at the end, but there was never really a debate that Florida was going to win the game. I do think Vandy reminded us a little bit that this team does still have weaknesses. Florida didn't really do a great job against full court pressing that Vandy did, but Florida did cruise to a double digit win. They are now nine and five in the SEC. So that is where things stand with the SEC race for the Gators. They are now, um, as we said, nine and five there in that five, six area in the SEC standings for the SEC tournament. But of course, that's not really what matters. It's the NCAA tournament that really matters most. The Gators 
Right now, we're seeing them projected somewhere between uh, anywhere between a six and an eight. I guess I I think I did see actually one fringe bracketology had them as a five, but that was an outlier. Most of them between a six and an eight seed. Um, and the goal right now for Florida is to avoid that eight. You cannot get that eight nine line um, in the NSA tournament because the last thing you want to do is for this Florida team to slip up a couple times down the stretch cement themselves as an eight or a nine and find themselves in Brooklyn, New York, where even if they do win their first round game, they have to face Connecticut in the second round or have to go to Indianapolis and be the eight, nine game in the Purdue pod or go to Salt Lake city in the eight, nine game and be in the Arizona pod. That's, that's the worst case scenario right now for Florida. They're not going to fall out of the tournament. They're not going to fall into the first four in or the last four in and be part of that first four. So the worst case it can be for Florida right now is getting that eight, nine um, pod spot for Florida. So I think Florida right now is fairly safe to avoid that eight, nine spot. I have them right now as a seven. Um, They were my top seven seed. I just scrubbed the, I just scrubbed the field and did my own little bracketology. I'll be dropping that soon <clears throat> using a combination of net, of RPI, the quad one wins, the, the quad three, four losses, using the same criteria that the NCAA essentially uses, but I'm one person and uh, taking the bias out of it to craft my field of 68. If you've been following us on social media, you've been seeing those that I've been dropping on Twitter and Instagram um, and Facebook. So for those of you who don't, yes, I do bracketology as well. Gator fandom is completely removed from it just project who I think the best teams are and and how the bracket's going to look. So I have Florida as a seven right now. I can see them sneaking up to a six and potentially to a five. I don't think they're going any higher than that. I think they can win out. They can win the sec tournament. It's not going to matter. They're not going to get any higher than a five. I think they're looking at most likely between a five and an eight, but the question right now is much more than just what C number they're going to have. It's going to be, well, who are they going to play and what is their road going to look like? So that has everything to do with who the highest seeded team in their pod is. And like I just said a second ago, it's not going to be Florida. I don't think that they're going to be capable of rising up to a four seed where they could potentially get the preferential location. Not that there really is one, but I guess Charlotte, but I mean, those are going to UNC and Duke. Anyway, Florida is not going to be the quote unquote home team. They're not going to be the highest seeded team in their pod. So they're going to have to be at the mercy, essentially, of where the committee decides to send the uh, the highest seeded team in their pod. So, for example, if Florida is a six seed, right now the three seeds I have are Marquette, Auburn, Creighton, and Iowa State. Well, Florida can't play Auburn in the second round as a three-six matchup because of the NCAA's laundry list of of, of bracketology rules. I mean, pretty simple. They're in the same conference, so. They, they can't play. But anyway, they can only go to Iowa State's pod. They can go to Marquette's pod. They can go to Creighton's pod. Iowa State is probably going to Omaha. Marquette is probably going to Indianapolis or Pittsburgh. And Creighton kind of gets screwed because even though the NCAA tournament is in Omaha, you can't play on your actual home floor. So they're not going to be able to play in Omaha. They're going to get shipped out somewhere far, like Spokane or maybe Salt Lake City because there really aren't that many teams out West who are going to get put there for a geographic advantage. So that would almost be good if Florida went to Spokane because 
even though it's literally in the other corner of the country and not too many Gator fans would go, at least they wouldn't be playing a virtual road game. Um, but again, that's uh, probably the best case scenario. There are other scenarios that are in a way better, in a way worse. Obviously, things are going to shift a lot between now and then. But one thing I would say to keep an eye on is how North Carolina and Duke fare the rest of the season. Duke just took a loss to Wake Forest. I have Duke as a four now. I have Duke as a four seed right now after that loss to Wake Forest. And if Florida does sneak themselves up into that five seed line, that's an opportunity for Florida to match up with Duke or course if duke were to be a two and florida was a seven or if duke was to be a three and florida was to be a six florida and duke could potentially match up because the ncaa does have a bit of a history of pairing these teams that are fairly regional in the same pot in a location that's close to all of them for example if you remember the year South Carolina went to the final four, they were a seven seed and Duke was a two seed. The NCAA decided not to give Duke a home court advantage. And instead they set up a true neutral round of 32 by putting them both in Greenville, South Carolina, which is not a home game for Duke. It is closer to Duke than it is to most other schools, but it's not a home game for Duke when you have South Carolina there. So Duke paid for that. South Carolina beat them in Greenville. The NCAA loves upsets and they love chaos. So they very well might do that again with Florida if they got the chance to bracketologically match up Florida with either UNC or Duke. In this case, it would be Charlotte, North Carolina. It would not be in Greenville because that's where the NCAA tournament is this year. So that's that. That's basketball. On to baseball. Everyone on social media, as I saw, was very, very unhappy with that opening loss to St. John's. I can't say I blame them. That was not a performance that inspired a lot of positive feelings. Um, I think the only thing that game really proved was that if Florida has a starting pitcher who has a bad night, it, it can indeed be enough to lose a game for Florida. The offense is not guaranteed to do anything uh, on a given night, which you know, that's baseball. We kind of, those of us who've been following baseball for long enough uh, know that already, that your, your bats can just go dead on any night and, and you can lose a game on any given night. We all saw what Fisher can do in the NCAA tournament last year. He saved us against Texas Tech in the regional. The only reason we advanced out of that regional, we didn't get bounced out of our own regional for a third straight year was because of what Cade Fisher did against the Red Raiders. And he came into a really bad spot against Oral Roberts in Omaha last year, saved us there too, got a nice fly ball out and survived a big scare after Kevin O'Sullivan accidentally yanked out uh, his closer, Brandon Neely. And he did, he did well in game one against LSU too. So anyone still freaking out about that St. John's loss? I hear you. I, I promise you, I understand. St. John's is not a good team. That result should not have happened. I agree with you on that. But that is kind of what happens in baseball. That's why the Super Regionals and, uh, in fact, every round of the, of the NCAA tournament is double elimination. You have to lose twice for your season to be over. That's why you play teams two out of three every weekend of the regular season. You know, it's going to happen. Any, any team is susceptible to having a bad night. Just got to win two out of three. So Florida didn't get that chance against St. John's. The rest of their series got rained out. 
but we saw over the next week that that was the anomaly. Florida had a nice two-game sweep over UNF in the midweek and a three-game sweep of Columbia this weekend. Fisher was much better, as I think most of us pretty much figured he would be. The bats came alive, seven-plus runs in all five of these games, 10-plus runs in four of them. Couple of semi-frightening moments against Columbia here and there, but as we said throughout last year, give Florida enough time, give Florida enough game action to do this, give them enough at give them enough at bats. The talent disparity will kick in, the Gators will shine through, and they will win the game. They did that. Frightening moments be damned against Columbia. It was one nothing against Columbia on the Saturday game for a lot longer than it should have been only in the final um, and in the eighth inning, the Florida really break that one open, but it is a sweep. Florida is unbeaten since that first St. John game. And now we've got our first really big test of the year against the Miami hurricanes. I will be down there in Coral Gables. Should be a lot of fun. If you are a South Florida Gator and are big baseball fan, come on out. We'd love to paint that place. Blue, blue, not orange. Do not wear orange. If you're going to that, Please trust me on this. Wear blue. I love what I've seen from Jack Caglione at the plate. I think calling him an X factor for that weekend uh, would be kind of a cop out, but got to talk about him before we talk any more about the Miami series next weekend. Got to talk about how he has a batting average of over 500. Uh, he, that's, that's incredible. Even, even in a six game sample size, that's ridiculous. You know, you have to love his approach to the plate first. It starts with that. He's not going for the fences. I think in his head, and, and he said this on our show, when he when Jack Aglione came on our show a couple weeks ago, he even said, I'm not going to try to match last season. I hit 33 homers. I'm, I'm not going to try to match that. I'm going to stick with my approach to the plate. I'm going to try to hit the ball hard. I'm going to try to get myself on base, let my teammates behind me drive me in. I'm not going for homers. And look at what he's done so far. He's 12 for 22 for an average of 545 through six games. That is insane. That is absolutely insane to have an average like that, even through six games, even with that short of a sample size. That is ridiculous. So now the question is who is going to come up behind him and prove to be an equally fearsome bat? Colby Shelton, I think we've seen the real deal at shortstop. This is a good series against Miami where you can kind of look to see him cement himself as another trusted piece of the offense against better pitching. Because, yeah, you know, he did that against UNF. He did that against um, you know, Columbia. Okay, cool. But the Miami Hurricanes are a bit of a different animal. We've heard it all about Colby Shelton. We've seen him do it at Alabama. This is that series where we can kind of say, okay, now we've seen him do it for the Gators against good competition. We know for a fact that we've got something real in him. Love to see that. Um, same goes to the pitching, by the way. Love what I've seen from freshman Liam Peterson. Ryan Slater and Brandon Neely continue to do their jobs in relief. I think Kate Fisher will prove that that first game against St. John's was just an anomaly. But again, we'd love to see him bounce back with a big performance against Miami. This year is going to be a lot of fun, guys. This year for college baseball for the Gators will be a lot of fun. I think a lot of, I think the 2023 team drew a lot of Gator fans in, like a lot of casual Gator fans in, like maybe the the football first Florida Gator fans who just kind of sort of root for the other teams, kind of drew those fans in. 
it's worth sticking around. I'm telling you, this this team is going to be worth sticking with and watching them throughout the course of the year. It's a long season. College baseball goes 60, sometimes 70 games, depending on how far your team goes. But this team is going to be worth the ride. Get on or get on board early and watch them do their thing for the next four months. So this week against Miami is a, a big series, obviously, because it's Florida's first real test of the year. Miami is a pretty new team. For those of you who want to get a quick scouting report on them before we jump into our last sport of the day in softball, Miami is a pretty new team. They lost more than Florida did from last year. Guys like Yo-Yo Morales and Zach Levinson are gone. They do have Edgardo Villegas back. Blake Sear is back this year, although he is currently away from the team due to personal matters. Um, you know, obviously wish him the best hope. It's nothing too serious. I don't know any more than that, but I mean, personal matters can be any of a long list of things that are ranging in severity. So I, whatever it is, I hope it's resolved quickly so you can get back on there. Because personally, I want to beat them at, the, at their very best. I want to see the best athletes from Miami come out there and then us beat those best athletes. So regardless, best wishes to Blake Sear and that. Anyway, Miami themselves was not immune to the craziness of college baseball any more than Florida to start the year. They lost a midweek game to Central Florida. They also lost one of their three weekend games to Long Island, which <laughs> that's not good. That's that's worse than St. John's. Um, to their credit, they did bounce back and they clobbered them 22 to five in the finale. But again, that's just another data point to the fact that college baseball is wild and unpredictable. Uh, but I mean, obviously Miami is a better team than Long Island. Don't take too much from that one game, but just shows you what can happen on any given night. So a young team, they're looking to figure a lot of stuff out just the same as Florida. And that's why these teams play each other. Again, um, talking college baseball a lot more to bring in new fans because this team is a lot of fun. But for those of you who don't know, that's why Florida and Miami play each other and why Florida plays FSU in a different sort of setup in the, in the midweek, Florida likes to challenge themselves in the off season or, or in the, in the pre um, sec slate in the off in, in the non-conference, they like to challenge themselves. And that's why they play this series. Obviously there's the rivalry aspect, but Florida could in theory invite down say Indiana or I mean, there aren't, there really aren't that many great Northeast baseball teams, but I mean, like maybe like a Maryland, I mean, UConn is sometimes decent. They were in a regional last year, I guess maybe uh, coastal Carolina plays in a tournament every year. I mean, Florida, Florida in theory, like could host a tournament the way that softball does on uh, the way LSU kind of does LSU hosts multiple teams in their opening weekend of the season so that they can play more opponents. Florida wants to play Miami every year because they see themselves as a good match for each other. Obviously Florida has dominated the Miami hurricanes on the baseball field, but the series is what it is because these are the best athletes in the state. Florida wants to challenge themselves against that before sec play starts. And of course, as I just said a second ago, Florida has owned the series of late. Hopefully that continues this upcoming weekend in Coral Gables. Last board of the day, softball. Florida is off to a 15-2 and two start. Olivia Miller threw a perfect game. And then she threw another one in the first three weeks of the season. That is two perfect games in about three weeks, which is pretty awesome for a freshman. 
Obviously, it's a little more serious than that um, than just counting the perfect games. Florida has a what I think is a good team this year. I don't know what their ceiling is because um, of, of a couple of showings against better competition not going so great. But start with the pitching. Florida has some really good pitching this year. Uh, Keegan Rothrock and Ava Brown are both very good for Florida. It's hard to say this because, I, I mean, I, I love Elizabeth Hightower. The, the nice way to say it is, Last couple of years, she just wasn't what she was in 2021. Now, keep it respectful, but keep it real. I'm a big fan of Hightower. Numbers weren't there the last two years. Um, the missing of barrels for her wasn't there. And, and it sucks because, you know, she was an All-American in 2021. And I really liked watching her pitch. I love the way that she just, she made batters look foolish. It was a lot of fun to observe that as a Gator fan in 2021, but wasn't quite the same the next two years. I think... The reason I say that is I think Florida now has its best pitching set up since that All-American year of Elizabeth Hightower in 21 when Hightower was a true ace and Natalie Lugo could just come in for a completely different look and flummox hitters and, and that worked. Florida has its best pitching situation since then in the last three years. I'm high on Rothrock. I'm high on Ava Brown. I got to watch them in person for the first time this year at the Bubbly Invitational um, and, and I thought that they they could be something very, very special as their careers progress, but they are still young and just got to watch them and, and see their see their stock start going up. But could be some growing pains along the way. And, and we saw some of those growing pains in a one off game against Oklahoma State. A really cool thing that Florida did was schedule a single game against Oklahoma State's Cowgirls. Their head coach, Kenny Gajewski, used to work for Tim Walton at Florida. He was the hitting coach for some of those dominant teams that won the national championships um, in 2014 and 2015. So they're good friends. They made that game happen after Oklahoma state's tournament got rained out in Tampa. They just stuck around and made a quick trip up from, or maybe I think it was Clearwater. They made the quick trick up, quick trip up to Gainesville to play that one game. And Florida got a little bit exposed. I mean, they, they didn't embarrass themselves. Florida played a, a very good team. Oklahoma state is, frequently a, a top eight national seed, meaning they'll host the regional and the super regional, but clearly uh, a little, little bit of ways to go because Florida just could not hit the ball. And it's, it's frustrating to watch the Gators um, struggle against pitching like that. It's, it, it's fine to, or it's perfectly fun. I should say it's perfectly fun and fine to watch the Gators hit the ball well against the likes of Colgate and Jacksonville and North Florida and Lafayette and Georgia Southern, but that's not the level of opponent that Florida is going to have to beat if they're going to be more than just a team that makes the tournament. And that's not to say Florida will not have an offense because the season is long. There's, there's plenty of talent there. Kendra Falby, we know is an on-base machine. Skyler Wallace, we know is one of the best players in all of college softball one of the best hitters in the game jocelyn erickson a, a, a nice plug and play piece coming over from oklahoma she was a really good hitter as a freshman for the sooners unfortunately for her she was not the best catcher for a loaded oklahoma team she could have played anywhere else but oklahoma is just a different level um in terms of college softball they're kind of like south carolina for women's basketball for those new fans and behind them there's there are question marks uh, Lexi Kilfoyle is a very good pitcher for Oklahoma State. Florida couldn't hit her. And that's 
And again, you, you can praise her. You can say, you know what, Lexi Kilfoyle, I'll shake your hand. You, you did a great job. But that's the level of pitching that Florida is going to have to hit if they're going to be more than just a, an 0-2 or not even 0-2, just a, te- a team that won't get out of its own regional. So a lot of questions to watch there. SEC play will start soon. The Gators will be thrown into the fire a bit. The, the more they play against these great pitchers, the better – Things are probably going to look. You do tend to see improvements when you just keep throwing them out there against the best. But the data we have so far in three games against Power 5 opponents, that's Oregon State, Michigan, and Oklahoma State, in those three games, 12 hits, just two runs. And that Michigan game went extra innings, by the way. So Florida actually outhit Michigan in that game, but gave up a couple of freebies, and Michigan won in the 10th. So Florida is clearly a very good team. They are handling business against the lesser competition. That's great. They are competitive with the good teams like Oklahoma State, Oregon State, and Michigan. Those are all probably NCAA tournament teams. Florida beat one of them. They beat Oregon State, lost an extras to Michigan. And against Oklahoma State, who is going to be a top eight seed, they were competitive for all seven innings, just one mistake pitch. From from Rothrock cost the Gators the game, but you know one mistake pitch over the course of an entire game is nothing to be ashamed of. Florida was right there, just couldn't take the win. Um, but again, a lot of softball to be played, a lot of baseball to be played for Gator baseball, and there's still a good amount of basketball to be played for Todd Golden's team in his second year as they gear up for the NCAA tournament. That's all for this show. Again, we will have another show coming up very soon to talk about Gator football. Darnell Stapleton leaving for the NFL. Craig Fitzgerald leaving, uh, the strength and conditioning coach leaving, replaced by Tyler Miles. Florida then bringing in Jesse Ackerman to help Miles. Force our offensive lineman Peyton Joseph committing and DeAndre Robinson making us all feel good about the direction of NIL, buying his mama a nice house with his NIL money. We will talk about all that and more, and we've got guests coming up in the near future. So if you haven't already done so, please be sure to like, to subscribe, and let us know what you think. Because Gator softball, Gator baseball, Gator basketball, all sports right now that are generating a lot of conversation We want you to be part of that conversation with us. So leave a comment down there in that YouTube video. If you're watching on YouTube, if you're listening on audio, please go ahead and follow us on YouTube. Please subscribe to us on YouTube and be part of the conversation there as well. Until next time, Neil Shulman of the All Kinds of Weather Forecast saying, go Gators. See you next time.